Welcome back to the program. When we think about the state of language, we often think about it as something in the distant past. But language is very much a living thing with a direct nexus to our cultural evolution. The choices we make about the words we use both reflect our own place in the culture as well as the state of the culture itself. This is all part of the unique work of my guest, Professor Daniel Cloud. Daniel Cloud teaches philosophy at Princeton. He's the author of the previous book, The Lily Evolution Play and the Power of Free Society. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Daniel Cloud here to talk about his newest work, The Domestication of Language, Cultural Evolution and the Uniqueness of the Human Animal. Daniel Cloud, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to first talk about this idea that we tend to think of language and its evolution as something in the distant past to which we have very little influence or control today. Well, you know, something people do all the time is they argue with each other about the meaning of words or whether a word is being used correctly. And the idea people seem to have when they do that is that there's some fixed meaning of the, for the word that was established a long time ago. Um, and that maybe is written down somewhere. And they're just trying to uh, get it exactly right. Nowadays, you can check a dictionary, but before the dictionary was invented, people still had this idea that words have particular meanings and you can figure out what they are by sort of arguing about them. And what I'm saying is, uh, no, it isn't uh, the case that the meaning of the word was somehow established 6,000 years ago, and you're just trying to find it. In the process of having the argument, you're actually helping to reestablish your culture's sense of what that word means. You're refining the meaning and making it more precise. So what, I, what I'm trying to do in the book is get people to see things, ordinary things that they do every day as part of this evolutionary process, as part of the process by which our language and our culture is shaped. How does this relate to differences between languages and between cultures? Sometimes we'll think about a word that means something in English, and perhaps in French a similar word is translated to mean something either slightly different or dramatically different. What about that distinction between cultures and languages? How does that play into what you're talking about? There's, there's differences between uh, languages and cultures in the present, and there's also a fairly dramatic set of differences between the English we speak today and the English they spoke in Shakespeare's time or Chaucer's time. So there's both kinds of uh, differences. There's difference through time, and there's difference between language, <clears throat> language, particular languages. And I think the difference between particular languages is, a, is an interesting phenomenon because uh, it mostly has to do with um, grammar. Uh, words seem to flow fairly freely between languages. English words are finding their way into French and Spanish. And lots, in French and lots of French and Spanish words have found their way into English. But the syntax doesn't really, the grammar of, of our sentences doesn't really uh, bleed over from one language to another in the same way. So, I mean, there are two interesting things about that. The first is that um, it, it suggests that words and grammar must evolve by very different processes. And then the second, uh, the grammar of human languages is extremely interesting because it's way, way more complicated than it actually needs to be for communicative purposes. There are languages uh, like modern standard Chinese where the grammar is really extraordinarily uh, simple. There's almost nothing to learn. But then there are languages like uh, Korean or, or Hungarian that are ferociously difficult to learn. And I think what's going on with the grammar of human languages, the reason it's so much more complicated than it actually needs to be, is that the main function of, of uh, having a complex grammar for your language is to allow you to identify 
uh, local people and outsiders. It's to be able, it's so you can tell uh, who in your social environment didn't grow up uh, speaking your language. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a barrier to entry. It's a, it's a way for local people to make sure that they're dealing with a local person who has sort of the same values and priorities as, as, as they do. But it's not really um, what the, the communicative aspect of language is, is, is all about. The communicative aspect of language is all about these words, which actually can transfer fairly freely uh, from one set of grammatical structures to another. So there's, there's where, where most people would see one thing, uh, two different languages, French and English, I kind of see two things. I see French words and English words, and I mm-hmm. see French grammar and English grammar. What is the difference with respect to the evolution of those two things, in other words, language clearly is evolving, and we'll talk more about that. It's interesting that we don't see grammar evolving in the same way. The most striking difference is just simply that um, the 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 process by which words evolve seems to be largely conscious, and the process by which grammar evolves seems to be largely unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are aware of being in doubt about the meaning of a word or they're aware consciously that someone else has gotten the meaning of a word wrong. They often can say what's incorrect about the way um, somebody is using a word. So there's a, there's a big self-conscious rational component to the way that we deal with words and meanings that isn't really there for, for grammar. Grammatical change is easiest to observe in cultures that don't have a written language. And what, it seems, to, what seems to be going on in those cases is You'll have a population where a very large fraction of the people are bilingual, and uh, the the two cultures, the two neighboring cultures, are getting on pretty well. And sort of unconsciously, in unison, um, people will import elements of the grammar of a neighboring language into their language because it started sounding correct to them to talk that way. So that's an almost completely uh, unconscious process. And and the same thing in childhood, you can see that. Children learn uh, grammar almost completely unconsciously, but they learn words in a very conscious way and puzzle over their meanings and ask questions about them and argue with you about them and so on like that. In the cultural sense, I mean, it does seem to be a chicken or the egg question. Is it the choice of words that is shaping the culture or the culture that is shaping the choice of words? Well, I think most of all, it's human choice that shapes human culture. Um, that's that's the I guess the sort of difference between the kind of theoretical point of view I'm trying to put forward mm-hmm. and the existing theoretical point of view. Most you know in cultural evolution, they tend to think of the culture as kind of autonomous and powerful and evolving on its own, and the people as sort of being pawns that are being shuffled around by their culture and made to do things that aren't necessarily good for them. But I think that's a, an inaccurate image. The the title of the book is The Domestication of Language. And the big idea is that no, culture isn't like, human culture isn't like a virus. It isn't something hostile to us that may take us over and manipulate us and force us to do things that, we're, that, that, that aren't in our interest. It's more like a domesticated animal, like a dog. It's uh, become very well suited to the uses that we need to put it to just as a result of the small incremental choices of a long series of owners. Uh, people have taken pieces of culture from their parents and improved them very slightly or made some features slightly more exaggerated and passed it on to the next generation, who's also uh, improved it very slightly. 
Um, so I'm, that's, that's really more of a domestication model than a, than a model of uh, wild evolution of mm-hmm. some virus or some, some uh, pathogen. So, you know, what I'm really trying to argue is that people do have um, a lot of control over their culture and that it is us who manage our culture rather than our culture that manages us. Sort of striking differences in the predictions of these two theoretical models when you think about something like the Internet. Uh, the old model, the meme model, the uh, the hostile meme model, um, letting memes out onto the Internet is probably about the worst thing you could possibly do for the human species because they're going to evolve there and uh, the most dangerous ones, the most manipulative ones are going to do the best and uh, a few generations from now we're all going to be uh, walking around uh, doing horrible things because bad pieces of culture have propagated themselves through the Internet. But in a domestication market, the Internet is just a big market, a sort of a fair, and people are going down to the fair, and they're looking at the ducks and the geese and the cows and the dogs and the ears of corn, and they're picking the ones that really suit them best, that they they need to use. So the prediction of a model like mine is that uh, the Internet will actually leave people with culture that's more directly useful to them. Does it also mean in the domestication model and using the domesticated animal model, dogs, for example, that we see more division, more different species that within the broader culture, that because of the way various groups use language from a cultural perspective, that there is greater difference between groups as opposed to to a more homogenized idea? Well, that's that's a very good point, and, and it's a, it's. It, it has a lot to do with what I'm trying to say. Um, the striking thing about dogs is just how much evolutionary change there's been in an incredibly short period of time. They've only been domesticated for, you know, tens of thousands of years at most, and yet we have all these different dog breeds. We have these tiny little dachshunds and chihuahuas, and we have these great big, huge Great Danes. And it's because people have had a lot of different purposes, a lot of different uses, a lot of different needs for dogs. They've needed dogs to manage sheep, but they've also needed dogs to hunt rats. And I think with language, and and particularly with a language like English, uh, you really can see the same sort of process of diversification and fragmentation. Uh, What's interesting about the way we do it now, um, in a way, almost the birth of of, uh, modern civilization as we know it, the birth of the sciences, certainly, and mathematics was a process of inventing a certain sort of artificial language and then managing it in a, in a certain uh, very deliberate way. So the, the technology of deliberate language man- management and of creating social communities that are organized around a particular technical language with uh, their own designated experts who are the people responsible for maintaining and improving the meanings of the terms that are used in that discipline, that's actually a very fundamental technology for the whole of of modern civilization. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, a language like English that has a lot of technical annexes, I guess Wittgenstein's image of this is that uh, a language is like a European city. There's a medieval center with a castle and and a cathedral. But then on the outskirts, there's all sorts of big modern buildings with specialized uh, purposes, you know, factories and and, uh, and uh, things like that. But, but English 
just because it's a it's a global language and because so much science is done in English and and because it's a it's sort of a language of law and and now around the world it, it's it's got more technical annexes it's got more large mo- modern buildings standing around it uh, than almost any other language you can think of and the thing is really to a certain extent becoming dominated by the 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 technically advanced special purpose uh, suburbs so there's a kind of a phenomenon of of linguistic fragmentation or semantic fragmentation in which different communities of people speak very different versions of the language and have trouble communicating with each other that's sort of an inescapable part of modernity of the way the way we've managed to bring about the modern world how does this relate to the need that we have sometimes for a common language, a common purpose in things like the law or legislatures or schools, places where a commonality of language seems to be important? Well, it's a big problem because uh, English is a language that has the characteristic that no one person speaks the whole thing and no one person possibly could speak the whole thing at this point. There is no actual speaker of the English language who knows all the words and uses them every day because there are just too many of them. So, um, you know, as human, and this has become a much more serious problem as as we've gotten better and better at more and more different technical things. The the Greeks, one of the reasons Greek philosophy is so great is that everybody can still talk to everybody. They're all living inside of a single unified language, and they're trying to make the words mean the same thing. Uh, for everybody. But the job of a philosopher in the modern world isn't really that different from Plato's job. You're 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 actually trying to hold the language together. You're trying to create a a a, a language and a field of discourse in which um things from very disparate places really can be discussed in the same sort of uh language. It's just that it's a kind of a quixotic uh, pursuit in a modern context because you're not really going to succeed. How do we apply it then, or how should we apply it to education? Well, I think education looks very different in a, mm-hmm. in a theory like this um, because it I, I, one, of the, one of the big changes that's, that's driving this theory, the, the reason I wrote the book, is because another philosopher, Kim Sterelny, um, very ably uh, has explained that what sort of what's happening in anthropology now, where there's a much greater focus on cultural transmission and on how that works and how that evolved. And teaching education is part of the process of cultural transmission. In the old theory, you know, the meme theory, uh, the memes just kind of propagate from person to person and the people aren't really conscious of it or they don't have to do much about it and they don't have any choice of which memes they get and so they're likely to get bad ones. But that's not how it works for humans. That's how it would work for chimpanzees if they actually had a culture. They wouldn't be able to tell the difference between good and bad practices. And chimpanzees don't teach, so there wouldn't be any parents weeding out uh, errors or sort of unfortunate pathogenic pieces of culture. But the whole human thing is about, most of all, is about interaction between parents and children and adults and children and adults and adolescents. Because the main thing that humans do that's different from other animals is we pass cultural skills and cultural practices from generation to generation in an intact, usable form. And that's all about um, observing what the kid is doing and weeding out inappropriate attempts to be a member of the society and encouraging 
appropriate ones. So there's a whole gardening or cultivation process that has to happen for a human being to mature that doesn't have to happen for a chimpanzee to to, to mature. So I would say that um, in a theory like this, education becomes almost the, the central human thing. And as we pass those cultural skills on, one of the ways we do it is through this idea of narrative and through the language that we use in telling those stories. Talk a little bit about the nexus between that, if there is one, and what we've been talking about. Well, talk, talking about narratives and, and talking about stories, it, 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 it immediately makes me think about the, the topic of, uh, of uh, the kind of art that people in hunter-gatherer groups, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sort of group that people, human beings involved in, tend to have. They do have uh, long, complicated stories, often in po- poetic forms or, or as song. And the thing, you know, Darwin and Wallace, as soon as they discovered the theory of evolution, their feeling was that it applied very well to the rest of nature, but that there was sort of a problem about humans, because humans in their natural state, humans in a Stone Age society of hunter-gatherers, actually have a much, much more complicated culture and are much, are much smarter than they need to be for that, that lifestyle. Um, the, the human brain is just way, way beyond what, what you would need to be able to make a, a flint uh, knife or, or gather um, fruits and vegetables in the forest. So the puzzle is how did something as complicated as human in- intelligence ever evolve in that rather undemanding environment? And I think uh, Darwin's idea about this was that uh, sexual selection, competition for mates, played an awfully big role. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, you know the the way sexual selection works is that there's some feature that gives you a small advantage, but then a preference for just a slightly exaggerated version of that feature develops in the population, and uh, the the that means that the feature becomes more common, and the genes for the preference also become more common. And you get a sort of a runaway snowballing process, and the end of which you get something like the peacock's tail. Darwin's idea was that the arts and culture and, and myth and narrative and all the amazing things that people do, they're sort of like that. They're, the, they're like the peacock's tail. They're the results of uh, a kind of a long competition to tell the most interesting story or sing the most interesting song um, that probably started out with unbelievably simple songs and stories, which just got gradually more and more complicated because it conferred status on the person to be able to do this, to be able to spin out an interesting yarn or tell an ancient myth that meant something in, in that society. And that, you know, the, the, the reason we have a brain today that can do things like uh, modern algebra, <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, special relativity and, and, and composing, uh, you know, toccatas and fugues and things like that that our ancestors didn't really need to do that much is because of this endless competition to acquire status by telling the best story or making the most nicely decorated uh, piece of clothing. And does any of this change or speed up in, in from an evolutionary perspective today because we are more interconnected with each other in so many different ways? Yeah, I think that's the whole story of the last 10,000 years, the whole story of, of, of civilization and modern humanity is the process speeding up really dramatically um, as, as it 
feeds on itself. Uh, you get to a certain uh, point where technologies start to give birth to new technologies, which can then be combined with other new technologies to give birth to more new technologies. And you get a sort of a runaway um, feedback process in which lots and lots of... And there are specific things like the invention of writing, which makes it much easier to pass ideas from generation to generation, creates a sort of an external genome for the, the culture. Um, the, the whole process has sped up dramatically in the last 10,000 years, and it, it isn't slowing down now. It's still it's going a lot faster in the last uh, 20 years than it went in the 20 years before that. And I think, you know, how you feel about that depends, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself, on what theory of cultural evolution you have. Mm -hmm. If you're um, worried that culture is basically just a bunch of wild pathogenic memes that manipulate people, then it's going to mm -hmm. seem like that speeding up is a very dangerous thing because it's going to look like um, the memes are going to get better and better at manipulating us against our interests because they have a bigger theater to evolve in and they should, uh, they should you know, sooner or later they should, uh, we should come up with something so terrible that it wipes us out. But if you're taking a domestication point of view, then, then this speeding up process isn't that terrifying thing, a thing. It's a benign thing. It's just... Um, people finally getting a chance to sift through a big enough pile of items to find exactly the piece of culture that they want. Professor Daniel Cloud, his book is The Domestication of Language, Cultural Evolution and the Uniqueness of the Human Animal. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 